you enjoy that lesson last week? If, if you were not here, I really strongly recommend that you get the CD. My husband listened to it yesterday and he said, and he knew about Leviticus 23 and the Seven Feasts, but he said, there are things in there I never heard before. I, I just want to spread the word. I think everybody in our churches needs to know that God has a calendar. Don't you think they need to know that? And he's going to finish fulfilling it. It could be soon. Hope so. All right, would you open up your Bibles, please, to what chapter do you think? Not going to be in Leviticus. <laughs> I fooled you last week. <laughs> We're going to be in Acts chapter 2. And hopefully covering more verses than just half of a verse as we did last week. Half a verse. Well, there was a lot in that half a verse when the day of Pentecost was fully come. A lot there. <laughs> but today we're going to be covering verses 2 to 13. All right, our lesson is entitled, A New Birth. Whose birthday are we going to look at today? The church, the birthday of the church. Let's bow in prayer. Father God, thank you so much for the birthday of the church. Thank you that we have the wonderful privilege of being members of your church, your mystical spiritual body. It is a wonderful age to live in, and we thank you that we were born at this time. Even though it is perilous times and evil men are waxing worse and worse, we have that blessed hope that you could come for us suddenly at any one moment in time. And we do look forward to that day. We say, even so, come quickly, Lord Jesus. But in the meantime, please save so many more lost people, our loved ones and, and friends and our inner circle of influence and people that we're witnessing to, Lord, bring them to a knowledge of you before you do return so that they don't have to encounter those seven years of horrible tribulation. Now I ask, Father, that we would be able to focus on what your word has to say to us. I pray that I would be able to speak with clarity, speak quickly, that we would be able to absorb what you have for us, that there would be no hindering spirit among us, that the word of Christ would dwell in us richly. But we do pray these things, Jesus, in your blessed name. Amen. You don't have an outline in front of you, but it consists of four parts. We're going to look at a mighty descent. Then miraculous dialects, mystified doubters, and mocked disciples. They were mocked for being drunk, actually. Now, we'll probably only cover those last two, mystified doubters and mocked disciples, very quickly. So don't get panicked if, you don't, if like, you know, the time is gone and we haven't even gotten to them, because I can cover that a little bit more next week. But let's begin by looking at the mighty descent, and for this, we're going to read Acts 2, verses 1 to 3. And when the day of Pentecost was fully come, they, the 120, were all with one accord, homo simodon, one heart, one mind, in one place. What was that place? Probably the upper room. And suddenly... There came a sound from heaven as of a rushing mighty wind, and it filled all the house where they were sitting. And there appeared unto them cloven tongues like as of fire, and it sat upon each of them. Oh, and I want to go on, but I can't. That's where I stop. Okay. <laughs> While the 120 believers, which was inclusive of the 12 apostles, were sitting in the house, which was likely the one with the upper room, the large upper room, throngs of Jewish devout men, that's in verse 5, I believe. Yeah, I didn't read that. But devout men, multitudes, plus even some Gentile proselytes, praise the Lord. And you can see that down in verse 10. We're flooding Jerusalem for the early morning activities of the Feast of Pentecost. The outer courts of the temple would be filling with people coming out for the morning Shavuot service. And that service which celebrated the giving of the Mosaic Law at Mount Sinai would commence with the blowing, the blast of trumpets and the unison prayers of worshipers followed by the voice of the assigned reader who would 
would actually chant certain verses. Remember, we looked at some of those verses he would chant on that very morning, which included passages from Ezekiel and Habakkuk. The Ezekiel passages included reference to a whirlwind. What had we just read about? And brightness around an amber-colored fire that enfolded itself and a voice of a great rushing sound. And the Habakkuk passages included the mention of a time of silence and then speech, a report. What do the 120 do when the Holy Spirit comes upon them and dwells them? Immediately they get, begin to speech, speak in tongues and give reports about the wonderful works of God. And it says in Habakkuk that God remembered mercy in his wrath. If there was anything Israel deserved at this time, it was wrath for having killed his son. But he remembered mercy and 3,000 God saved on this glorious day. So it could have been, we don't know, but it could have been at the very time of the reciting of some of those Old Testament passages that suddenly, suddenly there came a sound from heaven as of a rushing mighty wind. Notice that the sound of a great wind was heard but not felt. And that is what the words as of indicate to us. The emphasis in this whole passage is not on feelings. The emphasis is on hearing. Literally, the Greek says that there was an echoing sound as of a mighty wind born violently. The disciples, hearing that whooshing, powerful sound, would very likely have known what they had been told to wait for had come. They would have known that. And likewise, likewise, they would have known it by the cloven tongues like as of fire. Not fire, but like as of fire. That they could see on 119 other people. I doubt they could see it on themselves because if they looked up, they, you know, they couldn't. <laughs> but they could see cloven tongues on 119 other people in that room. But before we broach that subject of the cloven tongues, I want to address the matter of the Spirit of God symbolized by the sound of mighty wind. Now, in the English language, the word spirit does not conjure up the idea of wind or breath. <sighs> Unless you're a Bible student. But if you just go to Walmart and ask people, what they think of when you say the word spirit, I doubt very many of them are going to say, well, I think of breath or wind, unless they're Christian and they know the Bible. However, in the Hebrew and in the Greek and in the Latin languages, and Latin was widely spoken during the time of the Roman Empire, the word for spirit was exactly the same word used for wind and breath. In fact, each of those words is what we call an onomatopoeia. You English people, you know what that means, right? What is an onomatopoeia? It's a word that sounds like what it is. Like giggle. Giggle, 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 giggle. It sounds like you're giggling, doesn't it? Just to say the word. And buzz. Sound, that's a good onomatopoeia. So each of these words were onomatopoeias. In Hebrew, the word for breath, wind, and spirit is ruha. In Greek, it's Nevma. And in Latin, it's spiritus. All sounds like breath, doesn't it? Wind. For the Jewish people, now remember, all 120 believers in that upper room were Jewish, right? For the Jewish people with their rich biblical background, the understanding of wind as God's spirit went even deeper. In the first two verses of the Old Testament, which would be Genesis 1, verses 1 and 2, the Holy Spirit is portrayed as the breath of God moving in creative power upon the face of the waters of the formless and void and yet in darkness earth. Right? And the Spirit of God moved upon the face of the waters. The earth at that time was kind of like a blob. You know, just, just a blobby thing. And until the Spirit of God moved over it and made it the earth as we know. In the very next chapter... Genesis chapter 2, 
There's the account of God creating Adam from the dust of the ground and then what? Breathing into his nostrils the breath of life so that Adam became a living creature, a living being. The implication there is that without the breath of God, man was simply dead matter. It was just dust. Just as without the breath of God, earth was without form and void. And then in Ezekiel chapter 37, it is the Ruach. And I don't know if the Hebrews roll their R's, do they? Do you roll your R's? No, okay. Ruach. <laughs> in the Greek, we do roll our R's. In Spanish, of course, you do too. But it was the breath of God that brought lifeless dead bones that were lying in a valley to life. Wouldn't you have liked to have seen that? The valley of dry bones in Ezekiel. <laughs> you wouldn't like to see that? The bones come to life, they stand up, you know, and then sinews and flesh and everything. That pictures the day, of course, that when God will breathe spiritual life back into a spiritually dead nation, and that nation, of course, is Israel. There is a very interesting verse in the scripture about this matter of God's life-giving breath, and it is found in Isaiah. Isaiah 2.22. I don't know if you've ever noticed this verse before or not. But it says this. It says, Cease ye from man whose breath is in his nostrils. For wherein is he to be accounted of? The inspired prophet Isaiah was telling his readers to stop trusting in mere men. Cease ye from man whose breath is in his nostrils. Why should we cease from trusting? Are there a lot of people in the world who trust in men and trust in even themselves? Yes, instead of God. Why should we not trust in mere men? Well, because man is a one-breath creature. Man is just one breath away from dying. He has to breathe in and breathe out in order to stay alive. Even a few minutes without breath and he's a goner. <laughs> of what account is that? Asks Isaiah, what good does it do to put trust in such a weak creature? Instead, put your trust in God. Because his breath is not in his nostrils. He does not exist by breathing in and breathing out. He is not on the edge of death if he ceases from that process. Right? In fact, God is the source of all breath. He is the source of all life. Well, the Lord Jesus continued the Old Testament symbol of wind for the Spirit. Remember, in his nighttime conversation with Nicodemus about the new birth, John chapter 3, he told Nicodemus that a person cannot see the kingdom of God except that he be born again from above by the Holy Spirit. He said, Marvel not that I say unto thee, ye must be born again. The wind bloweth where it listeth, and thou hearest the sound thereof, but canst not tell whence it cometh and whither it goeth. So is everyone that is born of the Spirit. There's something else that God breathed out. And what is that? All scripture is God breathed. Inspired by God. So with that quick and really far from complete background, we understand why the sound of the mighty rushing wind on Pentecost morning in Acts chapter 2 is so important. It is very similar to the account of the Spirit of God moving across the face of the waters of the earth at the time of creation. And it's very similar to the breathing into Adam at the time of man's creation. And the one yet day future breathing of spiritual life into Ezekiel's Valley of Dry Bones, into Israel. The day of Pentecost was the birth of a new creation, just like with all those other examples, and the creation of the scripture. This was a new creation, a new body of people called the church. A holy nation, as Peter called it in 1 Peter 2.9. It was a new era, for it was to be an age when the Spirit of God literally, as never before, indwelled his people. Aren't we blessed? Yes. We are indwelt by the Holy Spirit. No other people in history 
had ever had that experience. So, the first symbol of the sudden fulfillment of the promise of the Father, the Holy Spirit, was the sound from heaven as of a rushing mighty wind which filled all the house where they were sitting. It's interesting. The whole house was filled and then they are going to be filled with the Holy Spirit. The sound filled the house. The emphasis on that remarkable, fully come day of Pentecost is the emphasis, as is the emphasis throughout this whole passage, really through the whole chapter, the emphasis is on hearing. I want to show you that. Look real quickly with me. I'm going to just go through part of this chapter, and I want you to see how the emphasis is on hearing. Speech and hearing. Um, look at verse 2. We've just been talking about it. Suddenly there came a sound from heaven. Go down to verse 4. Uh, they were filled with the Holy Ghost and began to what? Speak with other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Look at verse 6. It's got the word noise abroad in there. And then it says, because that every man heard them speak in his own language. Look at verse 7. It says, these which speak. Uh, in verse 8, and how hear we every man in our own tongue. Go down to verse 11. Cretes and Arabians, we do hear them speak in our tongues. Look at verse 14. Peter standing with the eleven lifted up his what? Voice and said, ye men of Judea and all that ye dwell at Jerusalem, be this known unto you and hearken unto my words. And that goes on and on throughout the whole chapter. The emphasis <clears throat> of this passage is on hearing. It was the sound <clears throat> excuse me, of the Spirit that was heard, not the feel of the Spirit. They heard the sound, but they didn't feel any wind on them. Their robes were not blowing. The church age has its emph emphasis on what? Faith that comes by hearing. And hearing what? The Word of God. What are these when they're filled with the Spirit? What do they begin to talk about? The wonderful works of God. And we'll talk about that in a minute. The Word of God. What is the emphasis in the church age that we have revealed to us in those seven churches of Revelation chapters 2 and 3? Hearing. At the end of every one of those letters to the seven churches, Jesus says, He that hath an ear, let him hear what the Spirit saith unto the churches. As there was no gust sensation from the sound from heaven as of a rushing mighty wind, neither was there any heat sensation from the cloven tongues like as of fire. They did not feel heat externally. Now I would imagine that they, they had holy heartburn inside of them. I am sure that there was a warmth sensation within, but not heat from without. Both of these representations of the Holy Spirit emphasize the importance of speech, sound, and tongues on the day of Pentecost and throughout the church age. You know, Luke could have been inspired to write, and there appeared unto them cloven flames like un as of fire. But that's not what he wrote. And I'm sure Luke spoke to many of those 120 and asked them about the day of Pentecost. And what did it look like? You know, the flame thing on top of your heads. And obviously they said tongues. Looked like cloven tongues of fire. He was inspired to describe what the first-hand witnesses of this miracle saw, and it was as tongues, not as flames. But actually, if I was to draw a flame, it would look kind of like a tongue, right? But the human tongue is what God has given us for speech. Without the tongue, I could not form words for you to understand. Now, I could make guttural noises up here, you know, uh, 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 but you wouldn't have any idea what I was trying to communicate. We need our tongues to form words when we breathe out of our larynx. Tongues are how we make sounds that form words. The message here is that it is the Holy Spirit, the very breath of God, who empowers the believer to be able to speak out with his tongue the message of life in Christ that God has first breathed into him. He breathed that message into us 
through his holy word, which he breathed out, God inspired, and then we are to breathe out with our tongues that message to others. What was it that these original 120 believers spoke about with their, when their tongues were suddenly inspired to communicate with people in whatever language was necessary? Look at the end of verse 11. Here it is. They spoke about the wonderful works of God. And those wonderful works of God had just climaxed in the atonement death of his promised Messiah and his burial and his third day resurrection then his ascension back into heaven and now the fulfillment of the promised outpouring of his spirit. And we will find that Peter in his sermon which follows and which we will, Lord willing, talk about next week that he discusses all of those things about the Lord including what was happening on Pentecost with this outpouring of the Spirit. Wait till you hear Peter preach. Oh, gives me goosebumps. The man with foot and mouth disease. He got, oh, he got it. The representation of the invisible Holy Spirit as fiery tongues is so appropriate because the tongue is the instrument of speaking and teaching, and preaching, and sharing the gospel. Now again, if we go back to the Old Testament, we find that the 120 Jewish believers also had the advantage of knowing that fire was a scriptural symbol of God's presence. When God appeared to Moses at the backside of Mount Horeb, he appeared as fire coming out of the midst of what? A bush, a burning bush, but the, bur the bush was burning, but it was not... It was not consumed, Exodus 3.2. And later when the glory of the Lord was seen on the top of, that, of Mount Sinai by all of the Israelites, the sight, it says, was like a devouring fire. But it wasn't. It was like a devouring fire, but it didn't devour. You know, the fire of God never devours, never consumes the believer. You will never have to worry. If you are saved, you never have to worry about the lake of fire. Never, ever, ever. Amen. Because the Holy Spirit's fire is unique, and because it is eternal, it can never be extinguished. You can never extinguish the Holy Spirit's fire. Consequently, you know, it only takes a spark to get a fire going, right? That, that spark was lit 2,000 years ago in that upper room, in those 120 believers, and guess what? It is still spreading today, 21 centuries later. It, this is the casting of the fire on earth that the Lord had so long to do. Remember we talked about this a couple weeks ago, Luke 12, 49. He longed to do it once the baptism of his passion was over with. His baptism is over with. He endured, you know, he went down into the agony of his passion and his suffering on the cross. And it, that, all of that is past now. So this is the casting of the fire on earth and it's still burning today. It's burning in the heart of every one of you today, right? I hope. If not, you need to be saved. Fire is also a symbol of the cleansing work of the Holy Spirit. Fire purges and it refines and therefore it is an excellent, just like wind, and breath, it's an excellent symbol for the Spirit. As I said, fire begins with just a spark. But does fire spread quickly? Yes, and it can in no time consume huge parcels of land. As we've seen in this past year out west, just, you know, burning up acres and acres of land. We could say that's just exactly what that first generation of believers succeeded in doing by spreading the gospel throughout their world. That's what we should be doing today. The Holy Spirit is the burning, purging, illuminating. He also illuminates, right? Fire illuminates. You know, that doesn't mean much to us today because we can turn a switch on and have lights. But back in the day, fire was how they could see at night. They had to build a fire. It illuminates the believer to understand what? The Word of God. So Holy, the Holy Spirit is a burning, purging, warming, illuminating power of the tongue that speaks forth the convicting message of the gospel. Now, have you ever wondered about that strange word cloven? What do you think of when you hear the word cloven? I always think of a horse's hoof or something like that. <laughs> the Greek word for cloven actually means, and this makes sense because of the hooves, parting asunder. Or it means dispersed. 
the spirit apparently, you know, came, sounded like a whooshing wind come, coming in, and it appeared, according to Ezekiel, the passage in Ezekiel, as a brilliant, luminous, fire-like, amber-colored, orangish-red whirlwind, you know, swirling around above the house. And then it parted asunder, it dispersed to rest upon every one of those 120 believers in the appearance of individual tongues. Looked like fire. You see, unlike the Shekinah glory of the Lord, who, remember the pillar of fire? The Shekinah glory of, of the Lord? And that rested over Israel corporately, First of all, over the holy place in the tabernacle, and later over the holy of holies in the temple, the Shekinah glory in the midst of Israel, resting over the nation corporately as a whole. Now, the spirit presence of the living God was demonstrating that henceforth in the church age, he would rest not just upon the church corporately, but individually. Actually, it goes even more personal. He would indwell. He wouldn't just rest upon us. As in the Old Testament days, you know, the Holy Spirit would come upon David and inspire him and anoint him, etc. Now, the Holy Spirit would actually indwell every single member of the spiritual body of Christ called the church. Interestingly, even though this fire-like appearance of the Spirit was as cloven tongues, plural, Yet the word sat in the Greek is singular. So this clearly tells us that these fiery tongues were the representation of a single person. Many tongues, but they, are, they just singularly sat. And that person, of course, is the third person of the Godhead, the Holy Spirit. As per the Lord's words to his disciples before his ascension in Acts 1.5, John the Baptist had baptized them with what? Water. All right, that was not uh, salvation baptism. That, John's baptism was baptism unto repentance. They were to repent of their sins and prepare their hearts for the coming of the Messiah. But as John had baptized them with water, he had said he would baptize them with what element? With a capital E. He would baptize them with the Holy Spirit. You see, actually here on the day of Pentecost, Christ himself is the baptizer. Not John the Baptist anymore. Now Christ is the baptizer. But the element he used was not water. It was the Holy Spirit. Yes. This was the fulfillment of the prophetic picture of Pentecost. This was the beginning of the new covenant. It was the birth of the church, which was pictured by those two loaves of bread called the new meal offering back in Leviticus 23, verses 16 and 17. Remember, they were made and baked separately, but they were presented and they were baked with leaven. But they were waved before the Lord in a motion that actually formed a cross as one offering. Two loaves of bread, Jews and Gentiles, becoming one offering. As it says in 1 Corinthians 12, 13, For by one Spirit are we all baptized into one body. Whether we be Jews or Gentiles, whether we be bond or free, and have been all made to drink into one Spirit. This mysterious baptism of the Spirit was something every single one of those 120 believers received. Every one of them. It says that. They were all immersed into the spiritual body of Christ equally. Galatians 3, 26 to 28. Peter, James, and John did not get some kind of a special baptism. You know, God is no respecter of persons. Some people think that means he doesn't respect people. That's not what that means. <laughs> it means he is not bigoted. He is not biased when it comes to people. People are equal. He's no respecter of persons. The least known of this company. Remember how we speculated who some of these people might have been? We know who some of them were. But we speculated about some of them, and definitely there were some we don't know who they were. 
but the least known had just as much of the baptism of the Holy Spirit as anyone else, including Peter, including Mary. This was not some special work of grace that was given to some and not to others. The cloven tongues as of fire sat upon each one of them. There is no such thing as a spiritually elite group of believers who experience some kind of a second baptism. The whole purpose of the baptism by the Spirit is to unify the body of Christ, not to divide it. We are all baptized into one body. And it is a one-time sovereign act of God for every true believer. And it's not an act of our doing, other than, by faith, accepting Christ as our Lord and Savior. We accept Christ and we are immediately, sovereignly, placed into the body of Christ. The individual does not really experience it because it's a position. We are put in Christ. The believer is adopted as a child of God and positionally becomes a member of the body of Christ the church. A person who has not been baptized by the Holy Spirit is not saved. Period. That's what it says, Romans 8, 9. If any man have not the Spirit of Christ, he is none of his. When those 120 believers in Christ walked up the stairs that day to go to the upper room, not only did I tell you last time that when they walked up, they were Old Testament believers. When they came down, they were New Testament believers. Something else went on. When they walked up those stairs that day to go to the upper room, they went up as individuals. But when they came down those stairs a little while later, they were one mystical body. You see, individuals went up, but a church came down. There I am, pounding the pulpit. <laughs> this oneness in Christ was the answer to his own high priestly prayer of John 17. Do you remember how many times in that prayer the Lord Jesus prayed that we all... His followers would be what? One. He said in verse 11, that they may be one as we are, father and son. He said in verse 21, that they all may be one. John 17, 22, that they may be one even as we are one. Verse 23, I in them and thou in me, that they may be made perfect in one. Baptism is being put into something. The Holy Spirit, at the time of salvation, is put into us individually, and then, at the same time, we are put into the church. Christ's body. Remember he said, I in them and the, they in me? That's it. He, the Spirit, in us, and us in Christ. And we're joined with the Trinity. That's why it's called mystical. It's hard to wrap your mind around it, isn't it? But if, don't forget there's leaven in those breads. <laughs> when we are baptized by the Spirit, we are put into the mystical spiritual body of Christ. This occurs, bingo, at the moment of salvation. Because today, now, you see, we are past the transition from the Old Testament to the New Testament. The apostles, and this is the transition that we're talking about right here. The apostles and other pre-Pentecost believers were saved by their faith in God and his promised coming Messiah, Savior. And they actually knew who he was. They believed and knew he was Jesus. If they had died before the day of Pentecost here, they would have gone to heaven. They were already saved believers. However, these already saved people were baptized into the church on the day of Pentecost. This isn't the day they got saved. This is the day they were baptized into the church. But that's transitional. That doesn't happen anymore. Today, we're baptized into the church at the moment of our salvation. This was a one-time, one-time baptism for these believers. Do you know, there was only one fulfillment of Christ's Passover crucifixion, Right? When the day of Passover was fully come, Christ was crucified. Does he ever have to be crucified again? Does Passover ever have to be filled again? No. One time thing. Same thing with the Feast of First Fruits. It was fully filled, fully filled. It was filled full <laughs> on the uh, day of Christ's resurrection. Does he need to resurrect from the dead again, ever? No. Same thing is true with the Feast of Pentecost. It was a one time thing. 
Holy Spirit baptized believers into the church. From now on, everybody that is saved, they're baptized as another living stone member of the church. Now, at this point, I want to do a quick summary of the seven ministries of the Holy Spirit for believers of this age. Now, the Holy Spirit has many, many, many ministries. Okay, but there are seven for this age. Some of the mighty ministries of the Holy Spirit have already been completed, such as his involvement in the creation of the universe. That's done, completed. His ministry of inspiring the, the scripture is complete. Okay, but there are seven ministries of the Holy Spirit for you and I for this age. All this is in your notes, so don't worry about it. Five of the seven ministries for the church age are positional, sovereign acts of God that are bestowed upon every believer at the time of salvation. I want to do this because there's a lot of confusion about the Holy Spirit. And you really have to understand which ministry of the Spirit is being talked about in a certain passage. Because some have to do with the baptism of somebody into the church. Some have to do with the filling of the Spirit. Some have to do with the anointing of the Spirit. Some have to do with the spiritual gifts of the Spirit. So it's confusing. But there are five of the seven ministries of the Spirit for you and I today in the church age that are unconditional. They are impartially administered to all who put their faith in Christ. They never need to be repeated and they are never taken away. They guarantee the believer's eternal security and his positional standing in Christ. And these five unconditional ministries of the Spirit are, number one, the baptism. At the time of your salvation, you are baptized into the church by the Holy Spirit. It's unconditional. It just happens. Nothing you do except put your faith in Christ. Second one is the gifting. Do you know at the time you are saved you are given a spiritual gift? You actually are given all of the gifts, but there's going to be one or two that are more prominent in your life. If you don't know what your spiritual gift is, I, I think you could probably find out by asking your friends. They probably recognize your gift. Now, as you grow in Christ, we really should have all of the gifts you know, all of them, we should grow. But there's always going to be one, really, that's dominant. So there's the baptism, the gifting, the indwelling. We're immediately indwelt by the Spirit. There's the sealing. We are sealed by the Spirit. Second Corinthians 1.22a, Ephesians 1.13. That means we are His. We belong to Him. We're sealed. As a member of God's family, we're adopted into His family sealed and secure. There's the earnest. The Holy Spirit is called the earnest, the adabon. That means an engagement ring. The whole, did you know the Holy Spirit is God's engagement ring to you and I? Are we not his bride? Is there not going to be a wonderful wedding one day? The wedding supper of the Lamb? When the, bride, the bridegroom comes back and claims his bride? Well, the Holy Spirit is the engagement ring, the promise of that wedding to come. Does Jesus Christ take back his engagement ring? No. Now, some men might. Some women might give it back, even. <laughs> but Jesus Christ does not take back his engagement ring. And then there's the filling of the Spirit. However, now, the filling of the Spirit is not like those first five. It is not unconditional that it happens automatically. It is conditional. The distinction is this. The baptism of the Spirit is positional. When we're baptized... In our position, we are put in Christ. But the filling of the Spirit is practical. It has to do with our practice, our walk. Baptism grants the power. Filling turns it on. The filling of the Holy Spirit is a matter of us yielding to the already present Spirit within us so that He totally controls us. Now, when the Apostle Paul wrote of this matter... In Ephesians 5.18, he used, in Greek, the present continuous tense. So that the end of verse 5.18 of Ephesians literally says, Be ye being filled with the Spirit. And in that verse, he drew 
a comparison and a contrast with one illustration. It's interesting. It's not only a comparison, but it's a contrast. Because he explains that being filled with the Spirit was a state of being completely under the control and the influence of the Spirit, just like a person can be controlled and under the influence of what? Alcohol. You see, both are fluctuating conditions. So it's a good comparison. As a person can be totally sober one minute and then in a matter of just a few minutes, drunk, so can a believer be filled with the Holy Spirit one minute and then because of a willful act of disobedience or a slip into temptation by way of the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes or the pride of life, he can be empty. Now that doesn't mean he's lost the Holy Spirit. You see, some people get confused with that. And they think, oh, the Holy Spirit has left me. I'm, I'm lost again and I have to be resaved. No, 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 no. You just have lost the filling of the Holy Spirit. Not the baptism. That was unconditional. That was a sovereign act of God. The fluctuation of the filling of the Spirit does not affect the five permanent positional ministry works of the Spirit. Yeah, thank goodness. The filling of the Spirit is to make us more conformed into the image of Christ so that, so that we can show Him to the world by our walk. When, when a person is drunk, does it affect their walk? Oh yeah. You ever see a drunk staggering around? Does the filling of the Spirit affect our walk? Yeah, it should. It should affect our walk and our talk. The filling of the Spirit is always available to all Christians. But we must be in fellowship. We must be abiding on the vine, Christ. We must be in fellowship with Him. And what else? In fellowship with other believers. So if you have a problem with any other believer, you need to get that straight because you really can't be filled with the Spirit unless you're in harmony and unity with your fellow believers. And this is... Um, wait a minute, lost my place. Uh, so we must be in fellowship with him, fellowship with other believers, and we must not grieve the Holy Spirit by disallowing him access into every single avenue of our lives. You see, the 120 believers in that upper room were in such glorious closeness to the Lord through their continuous praise of him and their continuous prayer to him. And what else were they doing? Searching the scriptures, Bible study, and they had this wonderful harmonious unity among them of heart and mind that the Spirit not only baptized them into the church, but he filled them because they were open and clean vessels. That's why they won the world for Christ. Because throughout the book of Acts, we find they're always, they're, they continue to be filled with the Spirit. You see, we receive all of the Spirit but he does not necessarily receive all of us. I mean, you know, our us, not us, but our, us individually. Because we do not always give him all of us. We may close off part of our temple. Aren't our bodies called the temple of the Holy Spirit? Uh, you know, we can shut closed secret doors, secret closet doors of our temple. Or bedroom doors where we grieve him by our carnal activities or our ungodly thoughts. You know, someone might say, well, Lord, you can have this part of me, but I'm going to compartmentalize this little section and you can't have that. Mm -mm. We're grieving him. You cannot be filled with the Holy Spirit because you're not opening up your whole temple, your whole house to him. And this is why we are told to yield to him. This is why we are told to confess on a daily basis our sins to him and why we're asked why we are to ask him to fill us. On my way here this morning, I like I do every Tuesday and Monday, I pray for and every day, pray for the Lord to fill me. Fill me with your spirit. But I have to confess my sins and I have to be, remain a clean vessel for him to do that. Well, the seventh ministry of the Holy Spirit, I'm not going to get into this, but it's in your notes. It's the anointing. You know, the Holy Spirit anointed certain men in the Old Testament, like kings and prophets and priests, um, for special ministries. He does the same thing today. He anoints people for special ministries. You know, he anointed the Lord Jesus Christ at the time of his baptism. When he was baptized by John the Baptist, that was not that he was being placed into the church. That wasn't that, that he was filled with the Holy Spirit, because he was always filled with the Holy Spirit. 
Christ. <laughs> always, always, because he was utterly clean, no sin in him. But when he was baptized by John, he was anointed for his earthly ministry. All right, let's move on to the miraculous dialects. And for this, I'm going to read verses 4 to 11. Actually, I might just go ahead and read the whole passage because I don't know how far I'll get. So I'll read all the way to 13. It says in verse 4, And they were all filled with the Holy Ghost and began to speak with other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Now that word for tongues there is glosses. Glosses. I'll talk about that word later. And there were dwelling at Jerusalem Jews, devout men, out of every nation under heaven. Now, when this was noised abroad, the multitude came together and were confounded because that every man heard them speak in his own language. That's again the word glosses, or glosa, because it's singular. And they were all amazed and marveled, saying one to another, Behold, are not all these which speak Galileans? How can these guys speak all these languages? You know, they're just backwoods. <laughs> unsophisticated Galileans. And how hear we every man in our own tongue. Now that's the word in Greek, dialecto. Dialecto. What word do we get from that? Dialect. How do we hear every man in our own dialect? Wherein we were born. Parthians and Medes and Elamites and the dwellers in Mesopotamia and in Judea and Cappadocia and Pontus and Asia and Phrygia and Pamphylia and Egypt and in the parts of Libya around Cyrene and strangers of Rome, Jews and proselytes. Who are they? Praise the Lord. There were some Gentiles who came to Jerusalem, devout men who had accepted the God, Jehovah God, and accepted um, Judaism. And they were there to celebrate the Feast of Weeks. And it goes on, verse 11, Cretes and Arabians, we do hear them speak in our own dialecto, our own dialects, the wonderful works of God. And they were all amazed and were in doubt saying one to another, what meaneth this? Well, Peter's going to go on and explain to them what that means. But of course, who else do you think might have been there that day? Probably the religious rulers. Others mocking said, these men are full of new wine. Well, Peter goes on to say, no, we are not drunk. It's only 9 o'clock in the morning. We don't get drunk first thing in the morning. We wait till later. No, Peter did not say <laughs> <laughs> oh, every time God had something to say to man to this point in history he had revealed it through the Hebrew language okay up to this point he had spoken to man in the Hebrew language now there's a few passages in Daniel where he spoke in Aramaic but mostly Hebrew but things were now changed. This is transition, right? The veil had been rent at the time of Christ's death. The veil that separated the Holy of Holies, you know, from view. Uh, everyone was now invited. Everyone to be part of the priesthood of believers who could come boldly before the throne of grace. Not just the Levite priests, the Jewish priests. Everyone could become part of the royal priesthood. The middle wall of partition between Jew and Gentile had come down. Judaism was obsolete. We could say that the day of Judaism had fully come. We could say that. The penalty for breaking the law, which is sin and death, had been paid in full by one who completely obeyed the law, the law in all points. He had every right to extend grace to all who came by faith under the sheltering wings of his offered salvation. Christianity had now completed all that Judaism had looked forward to. Henceforth, God would reveal himself to man in a new language, a Gentile language. And what language did he pick? Greek. I am so glad that in God's sovereignty, he made me go to Greek school. <laughs> I hated going to Greek school. 
as a child. Three days a week after public school, I had to go for two hours and listen to Father Pavlo speak in Greek and learn all. But you know what? I hated it. I said, why do I have to learn Greek? So you can talk to your future mother-in-law in her native tongue. When I married Caldwell, and it, you know, I thought, well, that was a waste. <laughs> but it wasn't, was it? <laughs> from his, from this point, God would make sure. Isn't, so you see the transition even in language. What is the New Testament written in? Greek. What's the Old Testament written in? Again, it's transition. God would make sure that the good news regarding His promised Savior, His Son, and His atoning death on behalf of every person would go forth to every kindred, every people, every nation, and every tongue. The 120 believers that were filled with the Spirit were suddenly, without any need to go to language school, they were suddenly able to speak forth the wondrous works of God in many and very Gentile languages and dialects. I have a first cousin who had to learn French because he was going to what used to be called Zaire in Africa. Now it's the Republic of Congo or something. I don't, they're always changing names over there in those countries. But he had to go to uh, language school up in Quebec, Canada, he and his wife, and learn French. And he said, I don't think that the human tongue was made to speak this language. He just really struggled for years. Now he's very fluent in it, but he struggled. You know, these, these 120 people didn't have to go to language school. The Holy Spirit, this is a miracle, okay? Suddenly enabled them to speak whatever language they needed to speak to the people that were in front of them. So they could communicate the wonderful works of God. Those Jews now who went to the effort to travel to Jerusalem for the purpose of obeying the Lord's command regarding the Feast of Weeks, obviously those who would take the trouble to travel as far away as they did, we see where some of them came from, and I'll talk about that in a minute, but a lot, a lot of them had a long walk. They didn't have airplanes, cars. So those would, that would do that, as Luke pointed out in verse 5, were devout Jews. These were devout people. I believe that they were the devout ones, the 3,000, who got saved. I don't think the ones mocking the disciples as being drunk were the ones that were included in the 3,000 to you. I think it was the devout Jews. Those who truly came to Jerusalem to worship the Lord God Jehovah. There were representative Jews from every nation under heaven where they had dispersed themselves. That's an idiomatic phrase. It doesn't really mean they came even from America. But everywhere they had dispersed themselves. They were representative people. Now Luke's list of places in verses 9 through 11 include Parthians. They were part of Iran. Uh, Medes. Do you remember the days of Daniel in the Medo-Persian Empire? Um, there were Elamites. That's kind of like southwest Iran. Mesopotamia is the region between the Tigris and Euphrates rivers. That's still kind of like Iran-Iraq. Judea, of course, is the southern province of Israel. Cappadocia is where modern-day Turkey is. Pontus is up by the Black Sea um, near Russia and, and the edge of Turkey. Asia, it says, Phrygia and Pamphylia, those are parts of Asia Minor. Then you've got Egypt and Libya and Cyrene. Those are all in the continent of Africa. You've got strangers who came all the way from Rome. And you've got Crete, that's part of Europe. And then it says Arabians. Those were probably people in the um, east, east of Damascus, maybe even the Nabataeans, who were like Petra of Jordan. I mean, we've got here... From east to west, 2,000 miles. And from north to south, 1,000 miles. You know, the Jews were dispersed to their known world at that time. The first dispersal of the Jewish people came about 70, 750 B.C. when the Assyrians took the um, northern kingdom of Israel. And the ten northern tribes of Israel, by and large, those Jews that were not slaughtered by the Assyrians, the rest of them were taken forcefully and relocated in other nations of the Assyrian Empire, and they assimilated. 
They integrated, they amalgamated themselves eventually into the population. So some people say, well, the ten tribes of Israel were lost. No, they were not. Because before the Assyrians came and took them away, there had been a godly remnant from each of those ten tribes who had moved down into Judah to worship in the proper way, in the proper place, which was Jerusalem. You know, they had set up a golden calf up in in Bethel and Dan in the northern kingdom. That's why God came down. They were worshiping false gods. That's why he sent the Assyrians to take them into captivity. But there was a godly remnant of all ten tribes of Israel that had already moved down south into Judah. And we know this because remember the prophet prophetess Anna at the time the Lord Jesus was eight days old and, and his parents took him to the temple and Simeon and Anna were there. Well Anna we are told was from the tribe of Asher. Asher was one of the ten tribes from the northern kingdom. Anyhow um, then eventually even the southern kingdom went astray didn't they? And God warned them over and over again, you know, the same thing's going to happen to you that happened to the northern kingdom, but they didn't listen, and so they, they were carried off to Babylon. And they spent 70 years in Babylonian captivity. However, when they were then allowed to get, go free and to return to their war-ravaged land, most of the Jews didn't want to do that. They had prospered in Babylon, and they had learned skills And so when they were set free to go wherever they want to, they just went to all these other lands that are like listed here. Only 42,000 returned with Zerubbabel to rebuild Jerusalem and the the temple and the wall and everything. So that was all. I I don't know where I am in my notes, but um, (laughs) by the time of Christ, these dispersed Jews were natives of other countries. They no longer learned as foreigners. You know, when they first went to a new country, they had to struggle like my cousin to learn the language, right? But after one generation, their children were raised there and they, they could speak fluently the, the language of the country they, they grew up in. In fact, they, they even developed the dialects within the languages. You know, as we can tell, you know what a dialect is? It's, it's that little nuance of speech that lets us know where somebody is is probably from. Okay? Okay, be nice. Like, we can definitely tell that Terry Doby is from the Deep South when we listen to her dialecto, right? You might be able to pick up that I'm from Chicago sometimes. You know, water, Chicago. When, from Chicago, I could even tell if somebody was from the north side or the south side of Chicago. You can tell if somebody's from New Jersey, New Jersey, you can tell if somebody is from Philadelphia, Barbara, or Boston, park the car. You know, we, those are dialects. Minnesota. <laughs> I've been practicing. Uh, it makes sense that the only Jews who actually traveled sometimes great distances from the homes that, you know, in the dispersion to celebrate the feasts of Jerusalem would be the more devout Jews. That's exactly what Luke tells us is the case. However, we do find, interestingly, that there also were some proselytes. You know, just like Ruth, who was a Moabitess Gentile, had turned from the pagan gods of the Moabites to her uh, to the Jewish faith of the true God, there were proselytes. And I'm glad that there were at least some there in Jerusalem on this day. And likely some of them did hear Peter and get saved. So on the birthday of the church, again I ask, why don't we celebrate that? I do not know why we don't have that on the Christian calendar of the birthday of the church to celebrate. But on the birthday of the church, Jews and Gentiles in a great multilingual assembly gathered there to celebrate the central of, of the seven God-assigned Jewish feast days. And they were present to hear in their own languages, their, their, what do they call it, mother tongues, their heart language, and even their dialects, the gospel message regarding the Lord Jesus Christ. By the way, the text does indicate 
that the 12 apostles who were speak that it was not just the 12 apostles who were speaking other languages. It was all 120 believers in that room. Every one of them. And I believe that it wasn't just that each person could speak one language. I believe that every person, pretend I was one of those Galilean women, okay? And you came up to me, one of you came up to me and you spoke uh, Arabic. I could speak the wonderful works of Christ, of God, to you in Arabic. And then you came up to me and you were speaking Latin. I could speak to you in Latin. Otherwise, it wouldn't be so amazing and spectacular to all the witnesses if Peter had learned how to speak Roman and James had learned how to speak uh, Nabataean um, and, and John had learned how to speak Greek, which we knew he already knew anyway. They all knew Greek. They all knew Hebrew. But they were able to speak even in dialects with that little nuance of the speech. That was what was so totally amazing. There are two Greek words, as I've already told you, for tongues. Um, verses 4 and 6, the Greek word is glossa. That is a known language. Um, the other verses, I don't know where they are, let's see, 8 and 11, that is the word dialect. Now some say that this miracle was in the hearing that the disciples spoke as they always spoke. You know, probably in Hebrew, since these people were, most of them were Jewish. But that the people hearing heard in their own language and in their own dialect. Some say that the miracle was in the hearing, but Acts 2.4 refutes that very clearly. It says that the spirit-filled believers began to speak with other tongues. That was the miracle. They were speaking in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. It doesn't say that the people began to hear with other ears <laughs> as the Spirit gave them unclutterance. This was a miracle that worked in the direct opposite of what had ta taken place at Babel. Back in Genesis 11, there at Babel, because of mankind's united rebellion against God, you know, the people up until Babel all spoke one language. Why wouldn't they? Adam and Eve spoke one language. It was probably pure Hebrew. And then after the flood, Noah and his family, they all spoke one language. So everybody spoke one language up till Babel. But the problem was that the people united against God to try to build their own way to him, to heaven. You know, just like so many people do today. This was the first humanistic, secular, united, they're going to do it again in the end times, but, you know, build our own way to heaven. We don't need you, God, and your way, your narrow way. We're going to do our own thing here. And God from heaven looked down, laughed in derision, and what did he do? <laughs> He confounded, it's interesting that this even uses the word confounded in Acts 2, and it uses the word confounded in Genesis 11:7. He confounded their language so that he would destroy their work project. And they dispersed to how many nations? How many nations? In Genesis chapter 10, the table of nations, 70 nations. 70 ungodly secular nations. Now, of course, there were saved people in those nations. Isn't it interesting? It's 70. And now, the reversal of that, at, on the day of Pentecost, he makes everybody be able to communicate because he is building a new nation, a holy nation, one nation, the church. Peter calls it a holy nation. So they're all able to communicate with one another. I think about when we were, my family, my mother took us all to Europe shortly before she died, and I'm so glad we did that trip. But we were in Europe, and we were on a tour, and there was a Korean girl on that tour, and she kept gravitating toward our family. Only problem was, she could not speak English, and we could not speak Korean. But she kept coming to our family and wanted to be with us, and we'd smile at each other, you know. Well, finally, I found out that she could speak Spanish. And I had four years of Spanish, so this is really weird. But I'm communicating with a Korean girl in Spanish. <laughs> and turns out the reason she was gravitating to us is because she was a Christian. And it was just that unity. I said, En mi corazón es Jesús Cristo. And she's smiling. See, see. 
coming from a Korean girl. That was so weird. <laughs> but we're one nation. doesn't matter what language we speak, right? There's that one bonding of the heart. In Acts 2, God gave the supernatural ability for the 120 believers to speak all kinds of different languages, not so that there would be division, but so that there would be unity. This was the initiation of bringing people together in one body through their submission to the good news of one true Savior and one way to heaven. This miracle was not only to spread the gospel message. You know, there were people from all over so when they left, they took that good news to all their countries, right? That's one of the purposes. Uh, Christianity, uh, excuse me, but it was also to de demonstrate the end of Judaism. Christianity was the fulfillment of Judaism. The importance of tongues is related to the fact that for 2,000 years, if God had said anything, he had said it in Hebrew. From this point, he would say it, he would reveal himself in Greek. God was going to bring Gentiles into the place of religious privilege. He would reach not only to the Jews, you know, individual Jews, but he would reach to people of every nation, every kindred, every tongue, every dialect. In a sense... This language thing here was a sign to Israel. You know what it was? A sign of judgment. She had rejected Christ so he would send his spirit forth to invite those on the highways and the byways of the Gentile nations to come to the banquet that he had prepared for his son. Mystified doubters and mock disciples. I didn't think we'd get to it, but we talked about it very briefly. So we'll cover that a little bit more next week. Let's pray. Father God, we are so thankful again that you have taught us from your holy word. Thank you for what we have learned about the doctrine of the church. I know we'll learn a lot more in the weeks to come. Thank you that in your marvelous grace you designed to build your church and that you would not let the gates of hell prevail against her. And that you are still building it yet today. Every time your spirit baptizes a new believer into the church, you are indwelling and adopting and sealing them into Christ's body. And that to all of us you are saying, I want to fill your life. I want to dwell in you richly. That is filling up every area. Totally influencing every aspect of your walk with me. Father, may we claim nothing for ourselves but yield everything, everything to the control of the presence of Christ, that we might be the kind of person who attracts the attention of others, that we would have the kind of miracle life that draws the eyes and the ears and the hearts of others to us when we open our mouths. We know that before your great commission in this generation can be accomplished, we must be prepared to be the people of God who can do it. And I pray that we might each be used to the ultimate purpose of bringing glory to Christ in the winning of men and women and boys and girls to him. And we pray in his name. Amen. God bless you.